Good morning. I invite you to turn to John's Gospel. It's a privilege to be with you today. I'm Brad Evans. I'm pastor of Family Ministries. I'm office at the Anderson campus, so I don't get to get over here as often as I would like, but it's a privilege to be with you today. I also do congregational care. You may not know us that well, but this is my beautiful wife, Susan. We recently celebrated 25 years of marriage. How about that? Yeah, that's what I said. And uh, on this evening, we renewed our vows. Brian Fisher renewed our vows. It was a small private ceremony, and uh, tears were flowing. Uh, I had... uh, One person telling me that they knew why Susan was crying. She had just agreed to 25 more years of putting up with me. So, yep, pastor of family ministries, and uh, I am thankful for her. And we're going to be talking this morning about God's love. No one has displayed more to me the unconditional love of God than my wife. So I pray that you all get to experience that in in your lives as well. We have uh, a daughter, Rachel. She's graduating from high school. She happens to be suffering in Europe on a trip right now with her senior class. And uh, she's going to a small university. You may have heard of it, Texas A&M University, this fall. So that's right. So we're excited about that. Keep her at home. Actually, she's going to live on campus, but uh, that's Rachel. And then we have a sixth grader who's graduating, and he is months away from becoming a teenager, and I'm scared to death. So uh, he's our little wild man, and... uh, His name's Andrew. So that's our family. That's who we are. Uh, This morning, uh, let me back up. We're going to be looking at John chapter 3. I want to ask you a question. If you had an opportunity to talk to somebody about how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, where would you take them? I want to submit that John's a pretty pretty good place. The Gospel of John. Uh, I love John. John is... The beloved disciple, as we're going to see in a moment. The disciple whom Jesus loved. How would you like to have that on your business card? Or how would you like to have that, that you're the one whom Jesus loved? Well, you can through believing in Christ. And he does love you. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But John is a great place to take somebody that you want to share with them about who Christ is. We see the seven I am's in John where Jesus Christ talks about, I am the bread of life, I'm the way, the truth, and life, I'm the resurrection of life, several of those. In John's gospel, uh, it's a great place for a new believer to really sink his teeth into the foundational truths of Scripture. John is amazing because it's so simple that children can read it and they just love the, the images and the metaphors, but it's so deep, the most Profound seminary professors can, can't even come close to mining the depths of the gospel of John. So if you're going to take somebody and you're going to share with them about the person of Jesus Christ, and we go to John's gospel, where would you take them? Well, I want to submit to you that John chapter 3 is a great place to go because here we see a man named Nicodemus, and this isn't just some fairy tale, at a real point in time, a historical figure, Jesus Christ was born in a manger, grew up, became a man, and he had some encounters with real people. This is a factual account of a dialogue that Jesus Christ had with a man named Nicodemus. And so we see at the very tail end of this passage in John 3, 16, and so this is going to give us the context for John 3, 16, probably the most famous verse in our Bible. Would you agree with that? 
is there one that's more common or more famous than John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but the great promise will have eternal life. John 3.16. You know, that's that verse you see people holding up signs at football games and stuff. Remember that guy with the multicolored afro that used to always hold up John 3.16? I don't know what happened to him, but uh, I used to always see him at sporting events. And it's an amazing, amazing verse. Clearest verse in the Bible about what God has done to enter into a relationship with you and me and how that is made possible. The summation of the gospel right there in one verse. I want to tell you it's a little bit intimidating to think of teaching John 3.16. It's like trying to describe the Mona Lisa or the Hope Diamond. It's incredible. John 3.16. I want to give us a little bit of a, a running start as we look at this. And let's talk about who authored this and, and a little bit of the context before we get right into John chapter 3. So as I mentioned, it was written by John, one of the 12 disciples. And in the 12 disciples, Jesus Christ, he poured himself into these men and he had three guys that he was particularly close with. You know who they were? Peter, James, and who? John. John, as he calls himself, the beloved disciple, or the agape disciple, that divine love that God has for us. John experienced this. See, John's just not reading somebody else's mail. John wants us to know what it was like to be with the Savior, to spend three years with this man who was God. He wants to tell us about what he experienced, what he knows about this man, but also what he believes, that Jesus is the Son of God. And he wants us to experience this man so that we too, through believing in him and receiving his free gift of salvation, we too can experience what John did, and that's life eternal. It's an amazing book written by a man, again, the beloved disciple, the man whom Jesus loved. Key word, believe. Pistuo is a Greek word. It means to trust in, to believe, to have faith in, to have confidence in. We're going to see this in our text this morning several times. It's our response to the good news of Jesus Christ, to accept it and believe Who's it written to? Well, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is written to the Jews. Mark writes to Gentiles. Luke writes to Romans. Who does John write to? For God so loved the world. John's written to everyone. It's an amazing gospel. We see this in John 1.12. Let me walk through with me. I just want to bring us up to speed to our passage. John 1.12. John writes, but as many as received him, the person of Christ, as many as received a relationship with Jesus Christ, to them he gives the right or the authority to become something very special. What does it say? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
So when we believe in Christ, we become family, the family of God. We become children of God. I really like how Eugene Peterson puts it in John 1.14 about how Jesus Christ entered planet Earth. We celebrate this at Christmas. Born humbly in a manger, Jesus in an earth suit. John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood. This is the written word of God. It's holy. God is revealing himself to us. Divine revelation. Jesus Christ is the living word of God, where God reveals himself through his only son. The word became flesh and blood, moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, John says. The one-of-a-kind glory, there's only one like him. Like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Isn't that good? That's who Jesus is. John knew this man. In verse 18, he talks about how Jesus Christ has explained God. That word explained is exegete. When we exegete a passage, we explain the meaning of what is behind the words. Jesus Christ has exegeted, he has explained God to us. We keep reading in John, in 129, Jesus is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And John sees him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. All of these lambs, all these sacrifices, have been pointing to the perfect Lamb, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There he is. He's here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see Jesus calling his disciples to himself. He simply said, come and follow me. And 12 men responded. In chapter 2, we see Jesus' first miracle at Cana. Turns the water into wine. Purpose of miracles, validating the messenger. Wow, people are going, okay, this is not some everyday guy. He's doing something that is incredible here. And now if you look at chapter 2, verse 13, we get the context for where we are in our passage. 2.13, first Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. While he was there, he goes into the temple. There's a little problem going on. Money changers. Uh Uh-oh. So Jesus throws them out because his his father's house to be a house of prayer, not a house of merchandise. So he cleans that out, and then we come to this exchange we have with Jesus and some of the other Jews, and then in chapter 3, nighttime has come, and we have Jesus Christ, again, having a very real historical encounter with a man named Nicodemus. I love this Christmas card I got one time. There are many men who would be God, but only one God who would be man, and we're going to see Jesus Christ demonstrate himself to Nicodemus. So who is this guy? And by the way, as we encounter Nicodemus, John wants us to see some real accounts that Jesus has with individuals. He wants us to understand that God doesn't save on the group plan. It's a one-on-one deal. 
It's an individual decision that we make to receive his free gift of salvation. Nicodemus is the first one. And we're going to see his response. You keep reading in John, and you get into chapter 4, and you see the Samaritan woman, the, the adulterous woman in the well that had five husbands. And you see the interchange there. And she believes. And her village, many in her village believe because of her testimony. You keep reading, and at the end of chapter 4, you see the nobleman's son who's dying, and Jesus heals him. And this man believes. And so this is the first of a series of individuals that John wants us to understand that having a relationship with God is not just about being a part of a group. It's an individual interaction with a holy God. So we see Nicodemus in chapter 3. Let's pick up the story. Chapter 3, verse 1. Who is this guy? Nicodemus. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay? So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. What do we know about Pharisees? Jesus really loved to hang out with the Pharisees, didn't he? They just got along great. You whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. He had a clash with them because the Pharisees and the Sadducees represented the leadership of Israel, and they were the keepers of the law. They represented rule-keeping religion. And they were doing the best they could to keep the law, but also to pridefully show how much better they were than the average person. Jesus didn't want to put up with that. okay? And so he was in conflict with the religious leaders. However, Nicodemus is an exception. Why? God was working on his heart. God was stirring in this man. And he sought Jesus out. He comes to him. He was a Pharisee. His name is significant. Nick Odemus. Have you heard of Nike? Some of you are probably wearing some victorious shoes. That's the word of that's the meaning of the word Nike. Nicodemus literally means victorious over the people or conqueror of the people. So he is a man of prestige. Okay? He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. Look down in verse 10. Jesus in this dialogue, and we'll pick this up a little bit later, but it's more about who he, who he is. He says, you're the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things. He wasn't just a teacher, the teacher Quite possibly, Nicodemus is the big enchilada of all of the teachers of Israel. He was the representative who spoke on behalf of the leadership, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council made up of the Pharisees and Sadducees, 70 of them, that had enormous weight in government affairs, religious affairs, commerce, everything that had to do with the nation of Israel. And he was the teacher. So this just isn't just anybody. This is the most religious guy that knew all the rules and regulations of how what it means to come to God. For some reason, he was drawn to Jesus. So he was a ruler of the Jews. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what's he doing here? Why is he coming to Jesus? He's risking some stuff to come to this man. Verse 2, 
This man came to him, came to Jesus by night. Why did he do that? Why did he come to Jesus by night? Well, we don't really know. Maybe he didn't want the other Pharisees to know. Maybe he just wanted to have a one-on-one talk. See, he's trying to figure out who this guy is. He's seen some things he's done. He's performed some miracles. He's heard about his reputation. He's heard him teach. He's going, wait a minute, who is this guy? So he comes to him. He says, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now notice he doesn't call him Messiah. He's not there yet. He says, rabbi, term of respect, teacher. We know that you've come from God as a teacher. So he recognizes that God is using him, and he's got some wisdom, and he's got some teaching. And Nicodemus, Nick at night, he's trying to come and figure out. Come on, that was good. Nick at night, he's trying to come and figure out what's going on with this man. See, Nicodemus represents a part of all of us where we come seeking something that the world can't provide. There's a God-shaped vacuum in all of our hearts that can only be filled with Jesus Christ. So Nicodemus is seeking Jesus. There may be some of you here this morning that are seeking Jesus. And really, in many ways, we all are. Because, again, the world can't satisfy our deepest longing. We're made for something greater. We're made for a relationship with a holy God. Only God can give us that contentment that our heart's deepest longings have. So Nicodemus is, is a picture of all of us seeking Jesus. He's coming to Jesus. He's trying to figure out who this man is. And he recognizes it. He has some signs and uh, some things are going on. So now I want, to, I want you to watch this dialogue. It's beautiful in the narrative here. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. So he's seeking him, and he's making a statement to Jesus that, hey, we know you've come from God as a teacher, and, and God's with you. And now the story's going to take an unexpected turn because Jesus does not respond to Nicodemus's statement the way you would think. Look what he says. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly. Now, whenever you see truly, truly, you need to mark that in your Bible. Something important is about to happen. We're going to see this three times in our passage. It's the word amen. At the end of our prayers, we say amen. In other words, verily, verily. Truly, truly. That's what you see here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow, where did that come from? Was that what Nicodemus was talking about? See, Jesus knows our greatest need. Look at the end of verse 25, chapter 2. He himself, Jesus, knew what was in man. See, Jesus knows our greatest need. He knew Nicodemus' greatest need. His greatest need at that point is not some factual validation of, of his teaching. He needed a relationship with the holy God and that Jesus is the Messiah, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And he's telling Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Now that stumps him. So verse 4, we see his response. He's kind of going, huh? 
Look what he says. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Apparently he's got some gray hairs. You know, he's a little farther advanced in life. How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter to a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He's saying, come on, Jesus. <laughs> you want me to go back into my mama's womb and be born again? What do you mean by that? Look at verse 5. Jesus is going to use an illustration. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, verse 5 is a little bit hard to interpret. And there are different opinions on what is being said here. Particularly the phrase, born of water and the Spirit. Now, whatever Jesus is saying here, we need to recognize that he's explaining what it means to be born again. Verse 3, he's told him, told Nicodemus, and he's telling us, you must be born again. Okay, not talking about physical birth, he's talking about spiritual birth. Now he's going to explain that in verse 5. Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. There must be a spiritual birth. What does he mean by the water and the Spirit? Well, salvation is an act of God. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, oftentimes, when the Spirit would move, the result of that is after there had been a time of purification with water as they entered into the temple. And they went through a whole ritualistic cleansing. Also, at birth, in physical birth, there's the letting of water. So what I think he's saying here, he's explaining what does this mean to be spiritually born again It's a sovereign act of God. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit where we respond to him. But Nicodemus, and he's saying that to all of us, there must be, we're born dead in our sins, we must be made alive. He goes on in verse 6 to explain this a little bit more. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So we have a physical body, and that which is physically born the first time is born of flesh, But that which is reborn or born again is an act of the Holy Spirit. Because as Paul will tell us in Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're enemies of God. We're estranged from God. But through Christ, through believing in him, the Lamb of God, our sins can be forgiven. We're adopted into the family of God. We're declared righteous. And we enter into a relationship with the Holy God. We are born a second time or To say it another way, we're born again. Look at verse 7. I I, I can't help but looking at verse 7 and thinking that Nicodemus, he must have just had his jaw must have just dropped wide open, you know, or he's going, dude, what what do you mean? You know, I mean, he's he's trying to figure this out because Jesus says, Nicodemus, do not be amazed, or your translation may say marvel, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What I want you to notice in the Greek text in verse 7, the you in our English translation, a lot of times it's hard, we don't really know. Is 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 it singular or plural? It's singular. He's saying Nicodemus, you, Nicodemus, singular, must be born again. Why is that significant? Again, it's not about a group deal. I mean, maybe your parents were Christians. Wonderful. I'm so thankful but we must individually receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. He's talking to Nicodemus individually, and he's talking to you and me individually so that we can respond 
to the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, how's the Holy Spirit involved? We've already talked about the Holy Spirit, but he's going to explain this a little bit more. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. Did you hear the sound of the wind blowing through this last week when we had a, had a thunderstorm? The wind blows where it wishes, and you, still singular, you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's he saying? Well, you know, we have a lot of amazing science today through meteorology, and we can look at the high and low barometric pressure, and we can look at the downdraft of thunderstorm, we can try to figure a lot of these things out. But, you know, really when you're just sitting there and you look at the trees and you see the wind blowing, you kind of go, wow, that's cool. There's something behind that, right? And that's what he's saying. We can't fully understand this process of salvation and being born again. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit. Only God can change a life. And it's through the power of his spirit that draws us to himself and moves in our life and changes us. So now we see that we have a problem. Nicodemus has a problem and we conclude ourselves in this. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Again, he's still trying to figure this out. What's this born again thing? I'm I'm not getting it, Jesus. So Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Say, Nicodemus, let's start connecting the dots here, okay? You're the teacher of Israel, and I'm explaining some things to you. Remember what you've been taught and what you've been teaching, because this is going to make sense to you if you do. You're the teacher of Israel. You do not understand these things. 11, here's another one. Truly, truly, very important. I say to you, still singular, talking to Nicodemus, one-on-one, We speak that which we know, and we bear witness of that which we've seen. And you, now this is plural, you Jews do not receive our witness. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things, back singular, and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So what he's saying here is, Nicodemus, you're not getting it. First of all, in verse 10, you're not understanding In verse 11, he's saying, you're not receiving the witness. And what's the witness? Well, it's the testimony of who Jesus is, the miracles, what he's done, the fulfillment of all the prophecies. You're rejecting your Messiah. And then third in verse 12, you don't believe. And that's the essence of what keeps us from a relationship with God, a holy God, is not believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, you don't believe. He's going to use an illustration, verse 14. Nicodemus, again, he knows the law. He knows all the story of the, of the, the prophets and the Old Testament and Old Testament history. He knows all this, so he would have known this story. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, what's that about? Well, in Numbers chapter 21... The children of Israel were whining and complaining. Do you all ever do that? I do too. Okay? So we're all in that. We're all guilty, right? They were whining and complaining, and things weren't going like they wanted. And so God, he's a God, he's a loving God. This is a message of love. He's also a just God. He's a God of discipline. And he disciplines the nation of Israel by sending fiery serpents. And these fiery serpents bite the people, and people are dying. And they're pleading to Moses for help. So Moses, 
intercedes on the people's behalf and he prays. He said, God, forgive us. What do I do? And God said, take one of these serpents, raise it up on a standard and let the people look at it and know the power of God only can heal them and forgive them of their sin. So Moses takes a bronze serpent, he lifts it up on a standard or like a flagpole, he holds it up in front of the nation of, of Israel. And so what do they need to do to receive forgiveness? Just look and believe that God had the power to forgive. And Jesus says, this is an example of me. The Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross, right? What do we need to do? We can't work our way there. We simply look and believe. That's the message that um, Jesus has given to the answer to Nicodemus's problem and our problem. Believe in the Son of Man. By the way, who's the Son of Man? That's Jesus' title for himself. Luke 19.10, it's his job description, to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's who he is and what he's doing. So he's, he's the solution here. And if we look at 15 and 16, look how they go together. Often we look right at verse 16, but 15 is so beautiful. That whoever, talking to Nicodemus, one-on-one, he's talking to us as well, whoever believes may in him. In who? In whom is he talking about? Whoever believes in Jesus, in Christ, in him, the Savior, whoever believes in him may in him have life eternal. And then here's our verse, verse 16. It begins with four. It's the conjunction gar. It It could be translated for this cause. For this cause, God... Almighty God, the creator of the universe, for this cause, God, so agape, so loved with that divine love, unconditional love, holy God, so loved the entire world that he, God, gave his only begotten son, monogenes, one of a kind, the only unique son of God. God the Father gives up God the Son. Why? For this purpose, that whoever believes, placed their faith in, trusts in him, referring to Christ, should not perish, should not bear the condemnation, should not be judged because Jesus is our atonement, our substitutionary atonement. He bore the punishment that was deserved to us. Shall not perish, but here's the promise, will have. What does it say? Eternal life that begins the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, not after we die. The moment we believe in Jesus Christ, formerly we were dead in our sins, enemies of God. The moment we believe we are made alive in Christ, the Spirit breathes life into us. This is the demonstration of God's love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. John also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. Same author, 1st John. We've come to know and believe the love which God has for us because God 
is love. God is love. So what's the purpose of John's gospel? He wraps it up, and again, notice about believing, about eternal life, about the love of God. John says, I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by the act of believing, you may have eternal life in his name. John 20, verse 31. Life, second most common phrase in John. Zoe. Have you studied zoology? Study of life? Okay. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. What a great promise. What a great assurance of our salvation, of our eternal destiny is secure in Christ. And then of course, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No plan B, only through Christ. Only through Christ. And I love 1 John 5. Any of you ever wrestle with, do I, do I really know? How can I know for sure? John wants us to know. He wants us to be 100% confident that our eternity is secure. He writes in the witnesses this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son, Jesus. He who has Jesus has the life. He who does not have Jesus does not have the life. Okay, it goes on to say, these things I've written to those of you who believe so that you can know that you have eternal life. He wants us to be confident. He wants us to be 100% sure so we don't have to worry, we don't have to fear, so that Satan can attack us with doubt. So what happens to Nicodemus? You know, a lot of times in the Bible we see these encounters with Christ or we see these stories and we, we don't really know. Well, do you know what happened to Nicodemus? Look at chapter 7, verse 50. John tells us. John chapter 7, verse 50. There's a division on the people among who is Jesus? Is he really who he claims to be? And Nicodemus said to them, now, now maybe it's just a common name, right? Maybe Nicodemus is just, you know, like John or something, you know. We, we hear that all the time. Well, John wants us to know that he who came to him before being one of them. So he wants us to know this is the same guy. Look at chapter 19. Okay, now uh, Jesus Christ has been uh, crucified. And they're taking his body to be buried. In chapter 19, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea is taking the body of Jesus to his tomb. And you know, that's kind of hard to do that by yourself. You got all the burial spices and all that, so he needs some helpers. Who's helping him bury Jesus? Look at verse 39. Nicodemus came also. Who had? Oh, maybe that's an, a different guy. No. John said, who came to him first by night? Nick at night. There he is again, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of weight. Men, would you prepare a communion? We're going to have a communion here in just a moment. As we wrap this up, applications. How do we apply this to our own lives? What's our application here? First, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have never done that, what a better time than to, uh, to do that today? and to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Second thing is to pray for others who 
may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to pray for family and friends uh, that God would give you an opportunity to share the good news. So first is to believe ourselves. Second is to pray for those who don't know Christ, especially our family. And third is to be bold in sharing the love of Christ. I wanted to tell you a story. This is very um, challenging for me to share because it concerns my own family. It concerns my own father. My father passed away this past February, February 15th. His name's Bob, Bob Evans. I'll show you a picture of him on our farm in Missouri. Uh, I'm so thankful for my heritage. I was raised in a home where my mother was the spiritual leader. She took us to church. She told me about Christ. She had a huge part in me accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was nine years old. My dad was there. He did so many good things. I mean, he was amazing in involving us on the farm, teaching us to work. Just a great dad. Have, took me hunting and fishing and all those great dad things. Except for one thing. Don't really know where my dad was spiritually. Not really sure growing up. Okay? Because he never talked about it. Some of it's a generational thing. Yeah, my dad, when he passed away, he's 83. You know, just kind of private person. But I didn't really know. Does he have a relationship with Christ or not? So this past couple years, his health has been failing, and it particularly started going downhill uh, this fall. So this fall, um, I went up to see him in October, and I really wanted to talk to him about his relationship with Christ, because I wasn't sure. I didn't know. Do you have family members like that? Isn't it hard to talk to your own family about Christ? Oh my gosh. I mean, I do this all the time. But to talk to my dad, I've tried for years to bring this up, and, and I always got stiff-armed, okay? Always said no. What Didn't want to talk about it. So, again, my dad's health is failing. I go up in October, dun da da I'm going to talk to my dad about God, and I chickened out. Didn't happen. Come home, I'm going, okay. Lord, give me another opportunity. Well, after Christmas, after Thanksgiving, my mom called, and she said, you better fly up here. He's not doing well. They haven't given him long. I said, really? Whoa. So I flew up there with my dad and uh, went to the doctor with my dad, heard the doctor say, Bob, your heart's only pumping at 25%. Your kidneys aren't working. You're starting to retain water. And uh, that's going to end up in a condition called cardiac arrest. You won't survive it. You don't have long. So we went home. My dad was pretty shaken by this. And uh, all of his life, he's been able to fight through it. You just work hard, right? That's his philosophy in life. But now he's being told that that is not going to work. So he's very anxious, very worried, very worked up. And I'm praying for an opportunity to talk to him. And... As I was going up this last trip, I kept thinking of Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God of salvation for everyone who believes. Right? That was my prayer. Okay, God, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God of salvation. I'm going to talk to my dad. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God of salvation. So I go up there, and we met with the doctor. Next morning, we're having breakfast. I'm flying back uh, the next morning, and I'm thinking, man, this is it. I got, I got to talk to him. 
I got so nervous, you know, I'm sweating. I'm like, uh, so I'm making, making my eggs, you know, not, not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God of salvation. Here, dad, here's your eggs. Let's sit down. And we had breakfast. Eggs are salty. Sorry, dad. Did the best I could. Uh, not ashamed of the gospel. Power of God. I need to talk to him. Okay. Um, so we finished dinner, take the dishes up. Not ashamed of the gospel. Power of God of salvation. You get it? You get it where I am? Have you been there before when you need to, you know, you want to talk to somebody? Hey, dad, can we go in the living room and talk? What do you want to talk about? Oh, dad, I just want to go hang out. Can we just go hang out in the living room? So I wheeled him in the living room, got in his chair, sat down next to him. He looks at me. What are you up to? I said, no, dad, I'm just, just uh, okay, here it is, dad. I want to talk to you about your relationship with God. Uh, I'm not into any Bible thumping. Don't you thump me at the Bible. And I said, Dad, I'm not going to do any thumping, I promise you. But and the, and the Lord just gave this to me, and he will do that. I said, Dad, you're, you've left a gate wide open. Well, that's the cardinal sin on a farm. You do not leave a gate wide open. He goes, what? What gate? Go shut the gate. Cattle are going to get out. I said, Dad, it's the gate in your life. Your gate's wide open and Satan is just hammering you and he's defeating you and he's discouraging you and you're all caught up in worry and anxiety. And I said, Dad, God's word says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I said, Dad, you need God's peace. That's what you need. You need to close the gate. So he asked me this question. Great setup question. How do I close the gate? Dad, you close the gate by believing in Jesus Christ. By admitting that you're a sinner and you need a savior. And then he started going into, well, I've worked all my life and uh, all these. I said, Dad, it's not about works, okay? You can own every acre in Jasper County. That's the county we live in. You can own all this. And, Dad, thank you so much for all your work. But right now you're at the point that works is not going to do it. You have to be like a child in an act of need. Say, Lord, I need you. I want you. About that time the phone rang. I went, oh, no we got a distraction here. But it got my mom out of the living room into the kitchen. So just me and dad said, dad, this is so important. We don't know how long, much longer you have. I said, dad, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? He said, yeah. I said, do you believe that you're a sinner? He said, heck yeah. That's not the word he used. Heck yeah. <laughs> dad, Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Yeah. Do you believe that he not only died, but he rose again triumphantly and defeated sin and death? Yeah. I said, Dad, what is keeping you right now from just receiving his free gift of salvation and believing in Jesus Christ and and receiving that gift? He's offering it to you. Dad, will you do that? He said, I reckon so. So we prayed. My dad humbled himself, and he received Jesus Christ as his Savior, 83-year-old man. 
And he said, amen. And he had tears running down his face. And I hugged him. I flew away the next day. He said, dad, I'll see you. Don't know when I'll see you again, but I'll see you. He died on February 15th. And I had the privilege to preach his funeral. And I told this story of my dad trusting Christ. After the funeral was over, I was in the foyer, and one of dad's pallbearers, a, a, a man that dad grew up with, they, they went, rode their horses to a one-room schoolhouse. One of dad's pallbearers, same age as my dad, 83-year-old man. 83-year-old men don't trust Christ. You know that? Okay. And the 83-year-old man came up to me, and I saw him standing there, and he had tears running out. I, I thought he was just sad about my dad's death. He grabs me, and he whispers in my ear, my gate's wide open. Will you help me close it? I said, sure. Let's get together. So the next day, I go over to his house. It was snowing outside. In front of the fireplace, Bill gave his life to Christ and received eternal life. The power of the gospel. Wow. Okay, now men, you can come. Let's pass out communion here. And we're going to close. And as the men are passing out communion, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, what's holding you back? Let this be the day of salvation. Receive his free gift of eternal life by simply saying yes to him and trusting in Jesus as your Savior. And if you know Jesus, use this time to pray for any family and friends who don't know him and pray for their salvation. Pray that God would give you an opportunity. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this uh, time today. Thank you for the family of God. Thank you that uh, we've been able to partake in memory of what Christ has done, his, his body and his, his blood. And uh, we're just so grateful that we can call you our Father and we're your children through Christ. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for um, your gospel. Thank you for reaching my dad and his friend Bill. Thank you for reaching each of us in here who knows you, or more importantly, you know by name. Let us uh, consider the good news the treasure that it is, and be bold in sharing your love with others. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.